morning is the last few verses of Genesis chapter 3, beginning at verse 21. I'll read those verses with you now. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we've come to the end of chapter 3. And along with chapters 1 and 2, this chapter is foundational for all of Scripture. It tells the story of how the world came to be in the state that it is. It tells the story of our sin and the misery that sin brings into our lives But it also gives us the beginning of the history of redemption, the story of redemption. And at the same time, hidden in this beginning, we also find hints of the ending. Because also here in Genesis 3, the gospel of salvation is on full display. We see God's mercy and grace at work. We see how God protects his justice but also how he protects the objects of his mercy. The Lord drives man out of paradise, but at the same time we'll see that he also provides a way back. Let's summarize the sermon this way. The Lord God protects man by driving him out of the Garden of Eden. We'll see three things, that he provides a covering for their shame, verse 21. He provides a way out of eternal misery, verses 22 and 23. And he preserves their way home, verse 24. So the last time that we looked at this chapter together, we ended by seeing how Adam responded in faith to God's grace in judgment. Adam believed the promises of God. He believed that God would provide a solution for sin, for the damage that he and his wife had brought into this world that they had brought upon themselves and upon creation. God opened his eyes to see The mercy of God. He should have been dead, but he was allowed to live. Eve should have been dead, but she was allowed to have children, to bear children. They had no right to be standing before God. But God intervened, and Adam believes God. He trusts God. He trusts God's promise, the salvation that God had promised in verse 15. And even though at that moment his wife is the mother of nobody, he still calls her Eve, the mother of everybody. It's as if he's saying, Lord, I believe you now. I don't believe Satan anymore. And I know that I need rescue. I need a redeemer. And Lord, you are that redeemer, and I trust that you will do that. And so here we see how the Lord works salvation. He works faith and repentance in the heart of Adam. But there is more that is needed for salvation, and that is atonement. 
We see that in verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And now you might wonder why I'm using the word atonement to describe what the Lord is doing. As many commentators will argue that God is, is simply being kind to Adam and Eve and giving them better clothing than fig leaves to cover their physical shame. And while that is true, there's more to it than that. In this act of God, we see once again that the Lord God is taking the initiative. Right? And you see once again that the author uses the words Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, his God's covenant name. It's God taking the initiative. He makes these garments for Adam and Eve. They, they weren't asking for this. He takes the initiative. And in this act, he is showing grace and mercy. And behind grace and mercy, congregation, behind grace and mercy, what stands behind grace and mercy? It's atonement. Man cannot receive salvation without grace. Neither can man receive grace without atonement. God's justice must be satisfied. Atonement must be made. Man can only receive grace because God provides a covering for sin. It is God who acts in grace toward the sinner. And yes, there is more than one layer to this act of mercy. In the first place, God shows his mercy to this, to this couple that is filled with shame. They are covered with shame. But he shows compassion to them. They had tried to cover their nakedness with fig leaves. Before they listened to Satan, they had nothing to be ashamed of. But after they sinned, they immediately begin to have feelings and, and, and emotions and desires and thoughts that they, they'd never had before. Because of sin, they immediately felt guilt, and they, so they tried to cover themselves. But it was an inadequate covering. And that word, I believe I mentioned it in a previous sermon, that word describing the covering of fig leaves is used elsewhere in Scripture, and it, it, it simply means it, it's a girdle, or a, or a belt, or a loin covering. In modern English, we would say that's pretty skimpy covering. Man's attempts at covering himself are inadequate. Fig leaves just won't do. Before sin, there was nothing to be ashamed of, but sin brings shame and guilt. And just as the shame of nakedness cannot be covered by anything as skimpy as fig leaves, so our sin and guilt cannot be covered by anything as skimpy as good works or our attempt to hide from God or hide from the truth. Man often tries the fig leaves of good works to make himself presentable to God. But God cannot accept that. All the good works in the world cannot erase our sin, cannot atone for our sin. We are not able to make an acceptable covering for sin. Only God can make an acceptable covering for sin. So then here we are given a picture of atonement, where God, through the sacrifice of an innocent substitute, provides a garment to cover sinners. An animal had to be killed so Adam and Eve could be covered. And note well, God didn't use wool or silk or fur, but he used the skin of an animal to make coverings for Adam and Eve. An animal had to die. 
And so here we have, we've been given a picture of how God covers the naked sinner with a garment of righteousness. Here, God is illustrating that he is beginning to fulfill the promise that he made in Genesis 3.15. A picture of what Christ, the seed of the woman, would accomplish for sinners. A picture of salvation through substitutionary sacrifice of an innocent victim. Christ was truly innocent. God made him to be sin even though he had no sin in him. We read from 2 Corinthians 5. And by his death, by his death, the Lord secures a garment of righteousness for us to cover our sin. And so here in Genesis 3, we find the very first sacrifice. The innocent standing in for the guilty, a foreshadowing of the righteous standing in for the unrighteous. A picture of the one who was spotless, undefiled, and pure, a substitute for sinners. And this is what God is doing for Adam and Eve. This is how God accepts sinners. Faith is not enough. Forgiveness is not enough. God's justice must be satisfied. Atonement must be made. And so God sends his son into this world to become the atoning sacrifice for sin. And he hung on the cross, naked and exposed, his shame for all the world to see. And he did that, so our shame would be covered. And on the basis of that sacrifice, and by faith in him, sinners are clothed in his righteousness. Because of this clothing, sinners then are also still able to work in this world and to fulfill the mandate that God gave mankind in Genesis 1, verse 28. Notice that God covers Adam and Eve before he sends them out into the out of the garden into the world he provides protection from their shame so that they can go out into the world without the need to hide from god or from one another and to do what they had originally been called to do to work the ground from which he had been taken in other words congregation this grace enables them to fulfill their mandate. By grace, through faith, they can still live for God. By grace, through faith, their work is still acceptable to God. That's why Paul can write in 1 Corinthians 15, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is why Scripture says elsewhere, Do not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. This is why Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 calls us to be ambassadors of Christ. That's what we are. And this is why we can sing and do pray the words of Psalm 90, that we ask for the favor of the Lord upon us, that he would establish the work of our hands. So congregation, in Christ your sins are atoned, your guilt is is paid for, your shame is covered, you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, so you can go out into this world and you can fulfill your mandate. You don't have to hide from God. So then how shall we live? If this is what we believe and confess, how then shall we live? 
was already said, because your life is covered in Christ's righteousness, you can go to work. You can fulfill your calling. Your calling as prophet, priest, and king in the kingdom of God. You can be an ambassador for Christ. You can do your work. You can raise your children. You can support the church. You can do all of this because you and your work and your life, your marriage, your parenting, it's all being redeemed. And it is being sanctified by God and being used by God in his plan of redemption and salvation for you and for everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. So then, let's do as Paul writes. Let us be steadfast and immovable, knowing that your work in the Lord is not in vain. Do not grow weary of doing good. Continue to be an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ in your home, in the church, at work, in your family, at school, on the playground, with your co-workers, in your community. Live like one whose life is covered by the righteousness of Christ. And don't live like someone who's still trying to hide behind skimpy fig leaves. In the first place, this means that we must live from grace and not from works. It means that, that even if you could obey God for a thousand years, you would not be more loved than you are today. It means that God is faithful even when you are not because his faithfulness depends on who he is, not on who you are or what you do. And it means that every day again you can leave your sins and your brokenness and your weaknesses and your failings and your shortcomings. You can leave that all at the foot of the cross because Christ has covered that for you They have all been atoned for. In other words, you are standing before God, not clothed in the fig leaves of your good works. You are standing before him clothed in the righteousness that he provides for you in Jesus Christ. And when you are clothed in his righteousness, then you don't have to live in fear. You don't have to be weary of doing good and your work is not in vain. There's another point that should be addressed here. and This also, the fact that we are clothed in Christ's righteousness, also ought to be reflected in the way we dress. Physically and quite literally, the way God covered Adam and Eve should impact the way we dress and the way we live. Obviously, fig leaves were not adequate. Skimpy clothing is not adequate. Instead, God gave Adam and Eve tunics, Full body coverings from their shoulders to well below the waistline to replace those skimpy fig leaves. In congregation, the Bible is very clear about how God views any public nakedness, both for men and women. And the worldly trends have always been opposed to God's will in this regard. The worldly trends are that, you know, we should show as much skin as possible or dress ostentatiously to show off draw attention to our beauty or our physique. And then there's the other end of the spectrum, which seems to be very popular today too, and that is to dress sloppily and to be untidy. And so we ought to ask ourselves, does your wardrobe and your life 
reflect God's value of covering or the world's value of fig leaves? Do your clothing and your lifestyle reflect that you have been covered with the righteousness of Christ, a covering not made with human hands? And the answer to this does not lie in becoming legalistic. The answer is not to make all kinds of rules about wearing a tie or the length of your hair or anything else that you can think of to make rules about. The answer lies in acting and thinking and living and dressing as people who have been clothed with Christ. And so it should be clear to us that the way we dress is not simply about our physical bodies. Our outer covering is a reflection of our inner covering. God's covering should have a profound impact on our heart and our mind, but also on our outward appearance. And this, of course, like everything else in this life, remains a struggle for us. But thankfully, that struggle will end someday. God has also provided a way out of eternal misery. That's our second point. We read in verses 22 and 23 that the Lord God banished Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. That was certainly a punishment, certainly a result of the curse, but at the same time, it was a blessing. And first we hear God state the problem. Man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. By eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, man had become like God in the sense that now he could relate to both. However, on man's part, the sin was that in his sinful nature, he wanted to be the arbiter of good and evil instead of leaving that to God. One commentator put it this way, now man knows evil the way a cancer patient knows cancer, whereas God knows evil the way a cancer surgeon knows cancer. With God, this is right because he is the only perfect one. He is the one who is the measure of all things. But in the case of man, it becomes sin. And we already know that God has been merciful to Adam and Eve. He has not killed them. He has let them live. He has shown them mercy. They may still have children. They may still eat from the ground. So what then is God's purpose in driving them out of the garden? Why banish them from the tree of life? Was Satan right after all? Was God being vindictive? Was God withholding something from them that was rightly theirs? Well, the truth is, congregation, that by banishing them from the garden, God is really showing them mercy. Because what would happen if sinful man was allowed to eat from the tree of life? Then sinful man would live forever. Imagine that. Imagine if the lot of mankind was to live the way we are living now forever. In a state of perpetuity then we and our children and our children's children would live a life of perpetual misery. We would live forever alienated from God. Forever we would be living as fallen creatures. The tree of life could extend life, but it could not correct the state of sin. John Calvin writes in his commentary, even if man could have devoured the entire tree of life, he still would have lived against the will of God. And he still would not have enjoyed life. What hope is there in that? Imagine if we had to live forever in the condition we are in now. 
forever in sin and misery, forever broken. Beloved, the Lord was, was merciful in sending our first parents out of the garden, away from the tree of life. And keep in mind, too, that, that the garden is also the garden of God. It is the place of his presence on earth. It is like it, the Garden of Eden was the Holy of Holies. And that's evident from the fact that the cherubim are guarding the entrance to the garden. Scripture describes cherubim as angels who are always near to the presence of God. They're guarding his holiness. They were, the figures of cherubim were, were woven into the fabric of the tabernacle, for example, and, and statutes of, of cherubim, golden cherubim, hovered over the Ark of the Covenant in the holiest part of the tabernacle and also in the Temple of Solomon. And when you read Ezekiel chapter 1, you get a picture of, of these, these angels, these awesome and glorious creatures. And wherever they are, there is also present the glory of the Lord. And so the presence of these awesome creatures at the entrance of the Garden of Eden tells us that they are not only guarding the way to the tree of life, but also to the very presence of God. Sinful man may no longer eat from the tree of life, nor may he come into the presence of God. However, in his mercy, God softens the punishment by allowing Adam and Eve to leave the garden and to go out into the world and cultivate the ground. And this is evidence of God's love. Even though man had to be forcefully driven out of the garden, the verb that's used there is a very strong verb. It indicates a forceful action. Adam and Eve didn't just acquiesce or volunteer to leave the garden at God's suggestion. No, they were driven. They were forced out of the garden. God cast them out, away from the tree of life, but in the hope of a better life a secure future, a future obtained by God's sovereign direction and not by man's will, a future of certain hope based on God's promise, a future that included a possibility of return, the possibility of once again eating from the tree of life and living forever in harmony with God. God preserves the way home because note, God did not destroy the tree of life, nor did he destroy the garden. He could have done both. That means then that during Adam's lifetime, the garden and perhaps the tree of life were still, the tree of life also was visible. Imagine what that meant for Adam and Eve. Every day they could see the cherubim guarding the entrance to the garden and and that flashing sword. A sign of God's wrath and justice guarding the way to the tree of life. Every day they would have been reminded of what they had done. And Adam lived to be over 900 years old. For more than 900 years, he was reminded of what he had done. Imagine all the questions from the kids and the great-great-great-great-grandchildren. Grandpa Adam, what was paradise like? Grandma Eve, what did you do? How did you get Grandpa to eat from the forbidden fruit? And Grandpa Adam, why did you do that? It's so beautiful there. It looks like such a beautiful place, but we're living here in misery. What happened? You have to wonder how many times Grandpa Adam had to explain this, had to share the story of his shame, 
But that also gave him many, many opportunities to share the story of God's love and grace, didn't it? He would have had many opportunities to tell of God's mercy. And he could point out that the tree of life still existed. And of course, we don't know how much Adam knew and understood. But we know from Scripture that God has preserved the tree of life for all those who believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. To the church in Ephesus, the Lord Jesus gives this promise in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. God has made this possible. Neither Adam nor us could ever pass that flaming sword and get past the cherubim who guard the tree of life. No one can sustain the wrath of God. We would perish in our sin if God poured his wrath on us, if that sword came down on us. But there is one who has passed that way. The Son of God has borne the wrath of God. He satisfied God's justice. He appeased God's wrath. And by his death and obedience, he has opened the way to the tree of life and the paradise of God. And when we pass from this life into the next, we get to join the cherubim, singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So, let's thank and praise the Lord that he has saved us from living in perpetual misery. Instead, he has opened the way to eternal life. Paradise was once lost, but it has been regained. And the Lord Jesus, he promised his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you, and I will return to take you to be with me where I am. A place for each one of God's children. And one day, every child of God, every disciple of the Lord Jesus, will live with the Lord God and the Savior on the new heavens and the new earth. Then the dwelling of God will be with man. God will be near to us in a way that is not possible now. And we will see our Savior face to face. Then we will be truly home again. And then we will truly live happily ever after. But it's no fairy tale. It's a wonderful and profound truth. A wonderful and profound reality. And congregation, we may live from that reality already today. Because today, you have been redeemed. Today, your sins are atoned for. Today, your debt has been paid. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace to seek help in our time of need. That's where we find help and strength and and encouragement and hope. And that is a hope that does not fade or disappoint. Amen. Let's turn once again to Psalm 25 and sing stanzas 5 and 10. (laughs) 